Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about our exhibitions on view now is the exhibition Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, which explores the centuries-long history of trade and immigration between China and the U.S. Also on view, the new exhibition Audubon's Aviary, The Final Flight, Part 3 of the Complete Flock, as well as Freedom Journey 1965, photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein. Please pick up a brochure if you don't have one on, on your way out. It's our programs and exhibitions brochure and consider becoming a member. You'll play an invaluable role in supporting all of our programs. And I'd just like to ask how many members do we have with us tonight? Lots of members, as always. So thank you all for coming, supporting us, and we look forward to the new members in the audience joining us. Tonight's program, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, The Heart of Our Public Programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank our Chairman's Council with us tonight and for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. <clears throat> so the program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics, which are set up in both aisles. And we ask that you do this so that everyone in the auditorium and those listening on our recorded podcast, which we post on our website at a later date, so that they all will be able to hear you and so our speakers will hear you. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker whose book, The Fierce Urgency of Now, will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Julian E. Zelitzer, the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University and a Ford Academic Fellow at the New America Foundation. He publishes a popular column for CNN.com and appears regularly in the national media. He is the author and editor of 14 books on American politics, his most recent of which is The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, which you will hear all about tonight. Our moderator for the evening is historian, biographer, and journalist Sam Tannenhaus. From 2004 to 2013, he acted as editor of the New York Times Book Review. Previously, he worked for the New York Times as an assistant editor, and he has also contributed articles to numerous other journals, including Vanity Fair, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Mr. Tannenhaus is author of Whitaker Chambers, A Biography, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and was a finalist for both the National Book Award for Nonfiction and the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. Before we begin, I just ask everyone to turn off their cell phones, any electronic devices. Um, there's no photography permitted except for Julian Zelitzer's daughter, who's going to take some pictures tonight. So now please join me in welcoming our guests.
Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Dale, for reminding me yet again of the book prizes I didn't win. Um, <laughs> so we'll be taking questions afterwards. And you know, to line up behind the microphone, uh, there, there are two of them there, right, Dale? So there won't be microphones brought to you in your seats. So just remember to position yourselves there. And in honor of Congress and the Civil Rights, two Civil Rights Acts and Medicare, there will be no filibustering, just <laughs> actual questions from the audience. So Julian Zelizer, you've written an important book that I wrote about at some considerable length. And so let's start by talking about what battle exactly was being fought for the entire great society. We're not talking about one piece of legislation or even two, and who the combatants were. Well, this was a battle to provide government support, government assistance to help more Americans be part of a growing middle class. This is an era of economic growth. It's an era that one historian said was a, a period of grand expectations. And the idea for liberals in Congress in the White House uh, was that through government, you could broaden the range of people uh, who would gain entrance to this middle class. And that could entail civil rights programs to provide protections to African Americans uh, or healthcare provisions to the elderly or education assistance to make sure that the schools uh, were up to task. So it was a very, in some ways, conservative idea to give people the tools they needed uh, to join into this moment of prosperity. And when did it begin? Can we go back to the New Deal and say much of it was being laid out then, but there was unfinished business? For, for sure. I mean, FDR and the Democratic Congress in the 1930s had basically laid out the principle of how government could be used. Lyndon Johnson, this is when he comes to Washington, and he is uh, impacted by uh, everything that he sees. So you mean the young Lyndon Johnson? Young Lyndon Johnson. In the 1930s? 1930s, comes as an assistant to a member of Congress in 1931. He'll work for a New Deal agency, and this is the world he sees. Uh, in the 30s, Lyndon Johnson also learns who the opponents are, uh, to go back to your original question. And in the late 30s, there's a coalition in Congress of Southern conservative Democrats who will chair most of the committees and Midwestern Republicans who from the late 30s to around 1964 block everything that's liberal. So a lot of the ideas after the 30s where liberals want to expand government, they want to finish the unfinished business of the New Deal to deal with race, to deal with health care, to deal with education and urban policy is being systematically blocked by a very potent coalition in Congress. And Julian, it's interesting you mentioned coalition because we think today so much in terms of partisan divisions. But this wasn't really a time where the two parties were necessarily in opposition. It was factions within them. For sure. Uh, both parties are deeply divided during this time. Democrats have the Southern Democrats who are conservative on a lot of these issues and the liberal Northerners. Uh, whereas Republicans have the liberal Jacob Javits wing of the party, uh, but also people like Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, uh, who's called the Wizard of Ooze for his long-winded speeches, who's quite conservative on issues uh, like government regulation of the economy. Bipartisanship at this point was the enemy of liberalism. If you talk to many liberal academics, if you talk to liberal politicians, what they hated was this bipartisan coalition that prevented the parties from doing almost anything. And they spoke about a dysfunctional Congress, a sapless branch of government. Uh, in 1964, one month after John F. Kennedy is killed, 
Life magazine publishes its memorial edition for John F. Kennedy. And the lead article is the lethargic Congress versus LBJ. And bipartisanship is the problem. So what caused the ice to break? I mean, what you say in the book is that we have this idea, particularly now when there's so much dysfunction in Washington, we look back nostalgically in this great period in the of the 1960s when government seemed to work, when all the branches interlocked uh, to make positive things happen in the society for the betterment of many citizens. And you say, actually, no, this great moment was an anomaly and an aberration. It's not really how politics historically has worked. No, that's true. Uh, the frustration with Washington was as great in 1963, in many ways, as it is today. And so what happened? Two things happened uh, beyond Lyndon Johnson coming on the scene, which is significant. The first is obviously the civil rights movement. Uh, which creates immense, overwhelming pressure on Congress to move on the major issue of the day, and that was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So when you say the Civil Rights Movement, you mean Dr. King, you mean the various movements really situated in the South that are taking democracy to the streets to some extent, or working through the courts? That's part of it. So part of it is uh, the grassroots presence, the people on the streets who are conducting these protests. King is a shrewd operator. But then the civil rights movement was also in Washington. We forget about that. So there's a guy, Clarence Mitchell, who very few people remember, who was the lobbyist for the NAACP and the lobbyist for something called the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, which was an umbrella group of civil rights organization. They're lobbying, they're fighting the procedural tactics of, uh, of the Southerners. And so the civil rights movement was very broad and it went from the streets of Alabama all the way into the halls of Capitol Hill. And I think also Clarence Mitchell was someone who said it's not good enough for a president to sign an executive order because President Kennedy had signed a couple. Right. You have to have legislation passed. It has to become the law of the land. What's the difference there? Why, why is one so much more important? Well, the difference was, and Johnson agreed with this, executive orders are fleeting. They could be easily reversed. They don't require uh, a political buy-in from the different parties on Capitol Hill, they're not as permanent. They don't represent the same kind of commitment to an idea that the fight over legislation ultimately can produce. And he was very intent also in winning bipartisan support. He said of civil rights, I don't want a Democratic bill, this is Lyndon Johnson. I don't want a Republican bill, I want an American bill. Um, and so it was legislation, and if possible, which wasn't always possible, bipartisan legislation. So that was the first thing that broke the dam. So let's look at Lyndon Johnson himself. He is, normal description, a Southerner. He's a Southern Democrat. His mentor when he was in the Senate was the most effective of all the segregationists, Richard Russell of Georgia. What happened to make Lyndon Johnson the leader in Washington of this idea of legislating in favor of civil rights? Well, there's part of him that's very liberal, even as he's being mentored by Richard Russell. And we have to remember, uh, he is someone who comes of age in the New Deal and who's pretty committed to the New Deal programs, even in the late 30s when many Southerners start to vote against a lot of what Franklin Roosevelt was doing. Johnson stayed the course. Uh, he also always had sympathy to the problems of racial inequality in the country. So when he heads the National Youth Administration in Texas in 1935, he's very committed to getting money to African Americans 
through this program. But what really happens in the 50s and the early 60s is he, like many other Americans, is impacted by what the movement is doing. Uh, and, and I think that's really the key of how he moves from someone sympathetic to the idea of racial justice, but not committed to legislation, to someone who's willing to stake part of his presidency on a bill. Uh, Julian, uh, something I found uh, really interesting and impressive in this book, and also other work you've done in the, in the many books that Dale mentioned, is you look also at other great, today, somewhat unsung legislators who had as much to do with shaping the policies and programs of the great society as the president himself. Yeah, so uh, we forget that there were a lot of liberals on Capitol Hill, liberal Democrats from the North, who had been coming into Congress in the 40s and 50s. One example is a guy named Richard Bowling from Missouri, uh, who was a liberal who believed that liberals were basically too weak, that they let the Southerners do all the dirty fighting, and they didn't organize, they didn't mobilize, they didn't understand how parliamentary tactics worked. And uh, he and other liberals formed something called the Democratic Study Group in the late 1950s, which becomes an informal caucus of liberals that's committed to mentoring younger liberals, to putting new ideas on the table. Pressuring the leadership as well. Pressuring the leadership, uh, whoever the speaker was, and, and, and even in some ways the Senate sometimes, to do something about questions like civil rights. A lot of the issues uh, that we call the Great Society were actually floating around Congress in the 1950s, and these legislators were the people who were talking about it. Hubert Humphrey, we, you know, we all think of Hubert Humphrey still in the 1968 election and the kind of disastrous run, but you know, decades earlier, he was one of these liberals. His first step in 1948, running for the Senate, is to make a speech at the Philadelphia Convention and tell the Southerners, to those of you who are committed to states' rights, and standing in the way of human rights, just leave the party. And some like Strom Thurmond He said it's did. time to walk in the bright yeah. sunshine of human rights. Yeah, and, and, and Strom Thurmond runs a third party ticket. And that was Hubert Humphrey until the mid to late 1950s. And he becomes a bridge to these liberals in the Senate uh, when Lyndon Johnson is majority leader. In the House, the Democratic Study Group is the main engine. They're very important players, including when Johnson's president to getting a lot of these bills through. Let's talk about another bill that's not being discussed so much now, although it should be because we're seeing the Affordable Care Act under attack from all sides. Medicare, that was a crucial part of the Great Society, was not enacted easily. Yeah, Medicare is a fierce fight. Uh, and it also makes the battle over ACA look a little tame. Uh, you know, uh, two main sources of opposition was the American Medical Association, uh, which conducted a national campaign against Medicare since it was proposed in 1957. Every year, the, a very expensive lobbying campaign, they called it socialized medicine, uh, which was not what a program wanted to be tagged as during the Cold War. You know, they did things I found like send out posters to doctor's offices uh, where patients leaving the doctor would see a poster saying, you know, if next time you come back, if this Medicare passes, a bureaucrat will be making medical decisions for you. Uh, Ronald Reagan records a record warning that this is the beginning of socialism in the United States. And then in Congress, there, this coalition also opposed the bill, including someone named Wilbur Mills, 
uh, who many of you will remember for uh, escapades later in his life. But Driving it, into the tidal basin. Right, with a stripper named <laughs> Fanny Fox. Uh, but at this moment, in 1963 and 64, he was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and he opposed Medicare, and every time it he was, was a Democrat. Up, he was a Southern Democrat from Arkansas, and every time it came up, he wouldn't even allow it to be voted on in the Ways and Means Committee. He said, no, no, no. Even after John F. Kennedy's death and, you know, all the good sentiment about what uh, needed to be done to move the nation forward, Mills still killed the bill in 1964. So it wasn't until 65 that this battle would have the logjam broken. And again, what happened? He saw the light. He changed his mind. Was it a kind of attrition that wore him down? Or was there some trigger mechanism that made him rethink? Yeah, nothing wore Wilbur Mills down. I mean, this was one <laughs> stubborn legislator. and he You wrote a book about him. I did. That was my first book, so I kind of came back to him. And, and if he didn't want something, he could outlast any president. Kennedy once said, you know, Mills was chairman before I became president. He's chairman while I'm president. And he's going to be chairman when I leave. And he understood the power they had. It was the 1964 election, and this was the second major part of the Great Society story. That election has huge effects on the American Congress. Um, it changes the numbers, and so Democrats come out of that election with 295 Democrats in the House, 68 Democrats in the Senate, and the balance between the liberals and the conservatives in the Democratic Party shifts to the liberals. And uh, Wilbur Mills instantly sees, after this election, within weeks, that if he keeps saying no, the liberals are basically going to humiliate him and get Medicare out of the Ways and Means Committee on their own through all kinds of tactics. And Wilbur Mills doesn't want to be on the losing end of this. Uh, and the other thing that happens in this election is Republicans uh, are devastated because of Barry Goldwater. No Republican wants to look like Barry Goldwater in January of 1965, like an extreme conservative who opposes everything. And who got something like, what, 38, 39% of the vote? Exactly. And, and one of the main issues that the Democrats campaigned on with him was Medicare. And they ran, there was one TV spot where you see, one TV spot had two hands ripping up a Social Security card, uh, warning about what Goldwater would do. Another is really, it's a map, and you basically see like the dots going from Arizona to Washington, uh, and the narrator is explaining that those are the trips that Barry Goldwater kept taking back to D.C. to vote against Medicare. And many Republicans come out of the election say, we need to propose some kind of health care program. So basically, by January of 1965, something's going to happen on Medicare. Some version of the bill is going to pass. And Wilbur Mills turns from an obstructionist into the architect of the final program. And uh, you raise a number of interesting points there. One is for anyone in the audience who's been following a lot of uh, recent historical writing about the rise of conservatism, the 1964 election is always pointed to as a crucial moment because it transferred power within the Republican Party from the East Coast to the Sun Belt, made possible in the end the rise of Ronald Reagan out of the ashes. He's the phoenix, as it were, of Goldwater's defeat. What's overlooked in that is how Goldwater's devastating defeat also, you say it in your book, made the great society possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the switch in the Republican Party, the shift to the right, all happens. And uh, Rick Perlstein wrote about the 64 campaign as a harbinger uh, for where the party was going to be going. But that's not the mid-60s yet. And it has the opposite effect 
uh, in the mid-1960s. Mid All the leaders in the Republican Party are scrambling to show they can do something. Uh, and with Medicare, there's literally two Republican alternatives that are put forth in February of 1965, you know, with the shadow of Goldwater hanging over them that become part of the final Medicare bill. Right. So if you look at that in contrast with what happened with the Affordable Care Act, the Republicans or conservatives at that moment decided, well, we have to come up with our own bill. And that's how we'll, we'll carry the battle forward, which is something that's only now begun to happen with conservatives on the Hill in, in uh, opposition to the Affordable Care Act, that hatch burr or something like that, that finally you see an alternative for for better or worse. Now let me lead you into real wonk territory. I'll ask the audience to be patient because there's a bigger argument behind it too, which is that uh, for many years now, a lot of history, this is why uh, Julian's work is so important, has really fixated on the presidency. And we see the president as the source, as the, as the Wizard of Oz, who disappoints because he's unable to do all the things to, uh, we hope and to realize the visions, the illusions we invest in him. You've been a scholar for quite a while now of Congress, and you refer at one point, one of your books, to the so-called imperial presidency, the time when observers thought there was an imperial presidency. Have we now moved out of that phase? Is that partly what your work is about, is taking us to an area where we don't look just at the president, but look at the actual workings of the House, the Senate, of committees, of appointments, of rules committees, what gets to the floor and what not, the kind of thing we're all looking at now that we kind of ignored for a long time. I hope we are. Uh, that's part of what I want to do. It's, it's not to say uh, the presidency isn't important or it, ha it isn't central to our stories of American politics, but out of context, we don't really get a sense of, of how it worked and how the battles unfolded. And I've spent a lot of time pushing uh, to bring Congress back into our big stories of American history. And, and when you follow contemporary politics, you see it very clearly. Uh, so it's easy to see how the battles on the floor, the battles in committee, all the tricks and the parliamentary rules really have a big effect on what a president can or can't do. We've seen this with President Obama and the immense problems he's faced since 2010. But we need to write the history that does that well. Uh, you know, I, I learned this as much from Lyndon Johnson as anyone. Johnson's a creature of Congress. Uh, he always is very keen on the limits of presidential power. And to the consternation of many liberals, he's always telling them, don't expect too much from me uh, and don't expect too much from this moment because once Congress turns on us, uh, there's not gonna be much we can do anymore. And in fact, his martyred predecessor, John Kennedy, was just hopelessly hammed strung by yeah. Congress. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, Kennedy faced a Congress before the civil rights movement totally uh, flourishes and before that 64 election. And most of his domestic agenda was dead and buried. Um, not to use those words, but uh, they, they were not moving. Medicare, healthcare, a tax cut, which would increase the deficit, civil rights, which he finally proposes at the end, are getting nowhere. Um, and in 1963, this is the time everyone's really warning that if we don't do something about the condition of Congress, uh, the next president won't have much success either. And it's not simply that Kennedy was dispassionate. That's an interpretation that uh, sometimes is 
use to explain what went wrong. He didn't care about domestic policy. He didn't love politics enough. You know, now Obama doesn't smoke enough with John Boehner in the golf cart. Back then, he wasn't mingling and schmoozing with Howard Smith of Virginia, would be the equivalent. Um, but on issues like Medicare, Kennedy was really pushing for that bill. He was doing everything he could. Um, but the composition of Congress really didn't give him the numbers he needed to get that through. And Julian, what about the third piece of the puzzle here? One that's being discussed a lot now because of the film Selma, yes. for instance, which is the nation itself, where uh, activists are, where the public is. Where was America on something like civil rights? Where was white America, let's say, in Chicago? Where was white America in 1963 or 1964? You know, it, it's mixed. They were, uh, they, they, the, the public, public opinion did come along on the Civil Rights Act, desegregating Southern uh, accommodations and institutions slowly. It wasn't automatic. It took a lot of a fight to do that. Uh, similarly with voting rights, on other issues regarding civil rights, a lot of the public never came along. And in Northern states, one of the big problems becomes uh, Johnson's proposal uh, for an open housing bill in 1966, which will end segregation in the sale or rental of housing. And so that's when the civil rights movement is really migrating north and west yes. from Dixie, from the Deep South, with its legalized Jim Crow, up to the areas where other kinds of segregation are being practiced, but under different rules and in some ways more difficult to take on. Exactly. Uh, Martin Luther King in six, January of 66 moves uh, to an apartment in Chicago uh, in, a, in a slum and does that to bring attention to these issues. And he says the, the violence he encounters in the North was much worse than anything he had ever encountered um, in, in Southern cities. And when Johnson sends this bill to Congress for open housing, it causes a very fierce backlash, including in very liberal constituencies in cities like Chicago, where this is too much and this is tampering on their interests, such as the ability to sell your home to whoever you want in a way that was not tolerable to many liberal, democratic, white Northerners. And wasn't uh, Ronald Reagan's early career, when he ran for governor of California, elected in 1966 with a giant landslide, that was partly a response to the, the migration of racial politics out to California, uh, a riot in Watts, yep. and then also debates over a fair housing bill. Right, the, the, riot, in, uh, the riot in Watts, the fair housing bill causes the, uh, is part of the 1966 midterm election. So in Illinois, one of the liberal lions who I've been talking about was Paul Douglas. Uh, and he's running against uh, Charles Percy, who's a, a moderate Republican, but uh, capitalizes on this backlash in places like Chicago to win Democratic votes. Um, and then the riots that are especially damaging take place in the summer of 67 in Detroit uh, and Newark, New Jersey, because uh, that takes place after Congress has turned back to conservative hands, after the 1966 midterms. And those riots play into conservative arguments about look what's happening uh, because of great society programs. So if I could, one small example is a bill that Johnson sends to Congress right before those 67 riots to provide some public funding for rat extermination in cities. It's a, mi it's a minor uh, program, a small amount of money, 
But it's seen as a public health issue. Everyone would agree. Well, it was here right in New York. It was a yeah, um, John yeah. Lindsay and, one. And the idea is, you know, children shouldn't be bitten by rats. And then the riots take place. And all of a sudden, the issue, this bill is politicized. I found one conservative called it the Civil Rats Act uh, of 1967. And the bill is killed by the end of the summer, by the time those riots ended. So the rioting, the open housing, that migration you're talking about prove very problematic and show that in some areas the, the country isn't moving hand-in-hand uh, hand with the civil rights movement. And a point you make in the book is Lyndon Johnson and his allies, allies in Congress, and then allies in the civil rights movement, know the moment has come. The 64 election, 1964 election, is a landslide. The door opens, then he begins to see, Johnson begins to see, the 1966 midterms are going to be a problem. They always are, almost always are for sitting presidents. The rare exception would be 1934, after Franklin Roosevelt was elected. The Democrats actually made gains, but it's unusual in midterms. So they knew even then, almost with a kind of fatalism, this was their moment. I think the very young Teddy Kennedy said that. We have to push for everything we can get now, because then the door is going to shut on us. Yeah, that's how they thought of that moment. That's why there's so much legislation. And uh, there's just tons of quotes from Lyndon Johnson saying that, mapping that out. Uh, and they're right. Uh, after those 1966 midterms, the conversation in Washington turns uh, very sharply against any new Great Society programs. The focus turns to Vietnam. Uh, and the focus turns to the budgetary costs of Vietnam and the need to cut domestic spending. So uh, from Ted Kennedy to Richard Bowling to Lyndon Johnson, they understood this was truly a moment and they understood that the Congress was going to turn at some point. Okay, so if that, that moment comes and goes, you have this brief gl glittering instance of government functioning in this extraordinarily efficient way. Now we are here in 2015 and we see a very different kind of government. What lessons do we take from this earlier time? Well, uh, the big lesson is, is that con congressional change, change to Capitol Hill comes from without, not from within. And uh, the idea that we are in a uniquely dysfunctional moment is not true. Uh, and you can look to the past and see that this existed before. But ultimately, the solution, even if temporary, that window of taking care of problems comes because of a civil rights movement. It comes because of activism. It comes because of voters voting in a big way. Uh, and, and I think that's a basic lesson from that period uh, that's absolutely essential to remember. Another lesson uh, related to what you just said is that when a window opens, use it. Uh, and uh, Obama did have a window. Oh, Rahm Emanuel said something about that, right, early on. He said, when you have a crisis, don't waste it. You don't waste it. it. Right. And, but that's not so much just a crisis. It's that when congressional conditions are ripe, uh, you know, you could argue that you don't wait. Uh, you kind of the assumption is this is it. And so uh, some would argue Obama did that in 2009 and 2010 and got as much as he could. Others would argue he should have even tried more because that moment was going to be fleeting. Finally, I do think it points to um, some of the reform questions that come up with how government works. And if we turn our attention not just to when do we have big majorities or small majorities, but uh, is Congress working or not, and that's going to be a factor in whether presidents can succeed, then we start to ask questions about our campaign finance system, gerrymandered districts, and realize that those are not separate from dealing with the policy questions of the day. They're actually very intimately related. 
And if Congress is not working, if there's no swings uh, in what happens on Capitol Hill, presidents are going to usually be stuck. Uh, Julian, a point you've made in some of your writing in this book, but in others as well, is that some of the most attentive students of the Democratic study group, of the liberals who took charge of the Democratic caucus, were very conservative Republicans a generation later. That what is, did they learn? They, I mean, the Republicans learned directly from those liberals how to organize. And uh, many of the committees that form in the 70s and 80s, uh, some with Newt Gingrich and, and some with other Republicans, Republican uh, study committee or policy committee, uh, they learned the importance of legislative organization to the success of movements. And they took that very seriously. And, you know, you can argue that liberals have uh, languished to some extent on that front. And the conservatives have been more organized in using parliamentary procedure, in uh, the politics of ideas in Washington, D.C., in using Congress as a base of power regardless of who holds the White House. And liberals have never really replicated what they built in Congress during the 1950s and 60s. So why then would Newt Gingrich or another conservative Republican look very closely at what Richard Bowling has done and say, okay, here's a model. Uh, let's apply it ourselves. Let's even talk to them and see what it is they do. Let's start organizing closed caucus meetings. Let's start putting out press releases the way they do. Let's start putting pressure on leadership to vote a certain way. Let's create something that in its latest iteration today is called the Freedom Caucus that can actually stop funding of government. Conservatives study how liberals do all of this, learn the lessons. Why are liberals not coming around, or are they, and studying what the Republicans did? Well, part of what happened is, I mean, I wrote an article for the American Prospect on this, and what I learned from interviewing contemporary leaders, they believe the leadership of the party became more liberal uh, in the last few decades. So there was less need for an independent The Democratic Party. The Democrats, uh, people like Pelosi came out of the Democratic study group. So in their minds, there was no need to divide the Democratic Party uh, with factions. They wanted everything centralized, they believe the speaker and the Senate majority leader or minority leader, whatever the status was, would represent those ideas. The heart of the Democratic study group was the leadership didn't believe in the ideas of liberalism, and they were going to force them to do that. A lot of liberals today feel that isn't necessary. I did find some are rethinking that. And there is, uh, you know, th there is a caucus of liberals right now, a congressional progressive caucus, that has tried to replicate what the Democratic study group did, but not very effectively. Um, but there is some openness to the idea that maybe Republicans have stolen some of their thunder in terms of uh, legislative organization. And since we're drawing parallels with the present moment, you've said Lyndon Johnson was a legislator, maybe the gr last great legislative president. And it puts me in mind that a historian who actually was ahead of the curve as he is in so many other ways, and not looking just at the presidency is the great Robert Caro. Because here we have four volumes of Lyndon Johnson with one more to come. It takes the fourth volume before he becomes president. It really became a study in legislative power, how legislation works, how committees work. And a point Bob Caro makes, and you do too, also the Yale Law professor, very brilliant, uh, Kill Reed Amar makes this point. Look at the Constitution. You do not have really three precisely equal 
branches of government. Article one at great length is about Congress. Congress shall make the laws. And I wonder if we're still at a point now, or maybe the Obama years have, have helped uh, clarify this for us, where we look too much to the presidency. I think that's true. And, and you know, Caro's book on Johnson as Senate Majority Leader is really just phenomenal and captures how the structure of the Senate in the 1950s explains a lot of how American politics was working. Um, but I certainly think after the last few years, many liberals understand this. I don't know if that will translate to more attention to Congress, whether it's intellectual or whether it's actual political attention to things like midterm elections being as important as presidential elections. But it's a lesson that has to be learned. Uh, and I think both sides uh, of the political spectrum need to understand that. Well, one reason there is uh, confusion about this might be that uh, electioneering campaigns have become so proficient and skilled. We are used to presidents who are elected to two terms. We've had three in a row who have, were elected to two terms, if you accept that George Bush the first time around was really elected. Um, but they serve two terms, and we assume President Obama will. As you know, it's the first time that has happened since Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were presidents about 200 years ago. You have a period of time from Andrew Jackson's election to Abraham Lincoln's, the seventh president to the 16th, in which there was not a single president who was elected to a second term. The greatest figures in that period were legislators. Yep. And to some extent, I'm just, uh, so here's what I'm leading up to. Are we almost better off sort of rethinking, all of us, the citizens, the members, participants in our uh, uh, democracy, a representative government, in realizing that legislature and uh, uh, legislation, the legislatures and states and in Washington and legislators are really the, the people who should be driving our politics in some way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, you can also extend that to the idea that legislators could make good presidential leaders. And uh, the, the most important point is to understand how legislators drive American politics at all levels of government. And if we reach that point, I think we can start to move to a conversation about having a more functional style of politics. Okay, so now I'm going to be devil's advocate. Yep. Because this is, uh, I uh, wrote a fairly long uh, a piece, article, essay on Julian's book. And uh, it's, a, it, it's a review. It's an uh, essay review in the New Yorker magazine. But I talked to people while I was preparing it. And here's an argument I heard from one historian that I'd like you to respond to, which is that, okay, Obama is not as effective a president in the Lyndon Johnson mode as Bill Clinton was. And therefore, his defenders will say, well, it's not Obama's fault. It's the system and the structure that's holding him back. Is there anything to that? Because you addressed this early on in your book. Those who say, well, why can't President Obama you know, smoke some more cigarettes with John Boehner, lose a few more rounds of golf to him, and get some things done? Yeah, the, first I'd say, you know, the, the idea Clinton was such a, if, you, if Clinton is such a great, uh, effective president isn't true either. 
and that he faced the same problems and was actually impeached uh, by the House. So let's remember uh, where he and was. And didn't get a health care. But it's a fair argument. And, and what the, the book doesn't want to just discredit Lyndon Johnson and say, well, it doesn't matter if a president is skilled or not. And it doesn't matter if a president understands how politics works. That matters uh, when these opportunities arise. But the system of politics really does mean a lot. And I do think it's fair to say uh, that President Obama's made many mistakes and he hasn't taken some opportunities that emerged. He's had messaging, problems, all of that. But it starts in 2010 when a Republican Party moving rightward takes over and uses many uh, aggressive methods of, of uh, politicking against him. Uh, it has to do with a campaign finance system he was never able to really transform. This system weighs heavily on this presidency. And I do think it's a fair argument to say we can't just talk about the internal life, the internal character, or the understanding of President Obama, what he had of, of how Washington works to explain what went wrong. It just misses the story. And it will create false expectations about our next president, and it will actually distract us uh, from what's really going on and what really explains the kind of politics we've had in the last few years. Is it possible to say that even when our government seems most dysfunctional, and that in some ways it's actually working? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, at all moments, government... Oh, do you mean in a conservative uh, kind of argument that we want it dysfunctional or that it's meant to be dysfunctional? Well, you answered the question. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one argument. It's working just perfectly. This is what we want. We have a disjointed, separated, fragmented system so that a lot doesn't get done. And that at certain moments when there's a crisis, when there's a depression, there's a struggle, the system uh, can come together, take care of the problem, and then it goes back to this. Um, you know, the other argument is that in most normal times, government is not going to solve a lot of the great problems of the day, uh, that it takes really an intense mobilization to do that. And in other areas, government functions, it funds usually homeland security programs uh, and, and funds basic domestic programs now like Medicare. And we do have a, a government that's working and that's doing a lot, even if we don't have great bursts of legislation. So I think either perspective can have a defense. Yeah, I was surprised uh, when I was uh, doing some reading uh, around and connected to your book, the great scholar, uh, political scientist, and historian David Mayhew at Yale uh, points to the early Nixon years as actually a time of tremendous legislative accomplishment. All we think of is Watergate, but in fact, a great deal got done. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the Democratic Congress that, that comes into power in the 1960s even though conservatives regain a lot of their strength, they're still churning out some important environmental programs, some important welfare programs through the early 70s. And Nixon still feels before 72, uh, if he wants to build a big coalition, he wants a big reelection, he's going to have to go along with some of it. I, I, Mayhew has been a great influence. I think sometimes uh, it's, the early 70s isn't what the mid-60s was. Uh, in terms of the significance of the legislation, uh, but it is an important point. You mean a smaller legislation? Yeah, small, yeah, right. yeah. Right, if you just count the number of bills, that doesn't necessarily exactly. tell you how much, is, exactly. how much is happening. But Mayhew is a great example. David Mayhew, of a, a political scientist who's always argued uh, that we need to keep our eye on Capitol Hill to understand American history, and he had a huge influence, all of his books, on, on how I think about the, the history of this period. And 
mention some other scholars. Nelson Polsby, another? Well, there's, some, there's some political scientists, David Mayhew, a guy named Nelson Polsby who taught at Berkeley. He wrote a great book, a, a very small, um, physically, uh, book about an idea of policy incubation. And he argued most ideas in politics don't emerge out of the nowhere. They take 10 or 15 years where they're fought over in Capitol Hill unsuccessfully. They're redesigned, there's compromises made, so when moments emerge to do things, they're already in the works. Richard Hofstetter is really, of all the scholars, the one who had the biggest impact on me. And not from political science, obviously, but uh, just in terms of how he wrote The Age of Reform uh, and, and put different periods together like that and blended social science with historical scholarship. Uh, that's a book that in all my books has a big impact. So that was a book uh, published around 1955. Yep. He's really looking at the progressive and populist yep. movements and relating them to the, really to McCarthyism in his yep. own time and drawing a line. And Dale, are we ready for questions now? All right, so do we have a scrum forming somewhere? <laughs> oh, it looks like we have a question here. Hi, I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. Um, thinking back to Lyndon Johnson signing the Civil Rights Bill in 65, and, and Richard Russell, the dean of the Senate, saying to him, you've just signed away the South to the Republican Party. Was that the turning point, the end of the great liberal experiment and the beginning of America turning to a more conservative uh, political philosophy? Well, that's a famous, a terrific story. Uh, that uh, it's actually in 1964, so it's after the Civil Rights Act of 64, Bill Moyers finds Lyndon Johnson uh, sitting uh, in the yellow room of the White House looking forlorn. And, and Moyers was working for him. Was yeah, Moyers was a, a, a top advisor and said, what's wrong? You know, Congress just passed the Civil Rights Act. And, and Johnson, I don't have the exact quote, but says, I've, we've just <laughs> given the South away to the Republican Party for decades to come. It takes time. I mean, that goes back earlier in our conversation. That quote it resonates today because the South does go to the Republican Party. It's the base of conservative politics. But for the time being, that doesn't happen. Uh, and in fact, that civil rights bill helps move forward a very liberal agenda. It becomes part of the 1964 campaign. It will take another, really, a generation until politics shifts that way. The Congress remains pretty liberal until the 1980s. The Democrats control Congress. Uh, the liberals still have power there, even though they don't have as much as 64 and 65. So I think it's a key moment. I think the argument uh, is relevant, and you can see where we're going to go. But it's too early to say the shift takes place at that point. Johnson's also very, that quote is great, but he's also very excited after that bill. And he's talking a lot about how they're going to do well for the time being. Uh, by winning the African-American vote, by winning more liberal votes in even coastal states. Uh, so there's, uh, Johnson's complex in how he reads that Civil Rights Act. Julian, how Thank important you. was it that uh, Strom Thurmond switched parties in 1964? He actually became a Republican. Was, was that opening up the gate to this, the southernization of the GOP? It is. I mean, uh, the, the heart of the shift of the South to the GOP really comes in the 1980s. Uh, that's when they really abandoned the Democratic Party. But obviously, Strom Thurmond had been, you know, one of the representative Democrats of that era. And he represented how there was this blend of Democratic power in the South combined with this, you know, uh, racial order of the period. And when he decides to flip, 
I do think symbolically it's a sign that those Democrats can't really come back into the fold anymore. Uh, a couple of interesting facts. In 1957, when a quite weak civil rights bill was pa passed, but, but the first since Reconstruction, and the New York Times said this is the greatest legislation of the 20th century, before the really important Civil Rights Acts were passed, not one Republican senator voted against that Civil Rights Bill. All the, all the opposition came from Southern Democrats. So what about this ideological sorting of the parties? You'll talk to some political scientists who will say, what you think of as gridlock now is actually just the parties being more properly aligned ideologically. Well, Where do you fall in that argument? Look, it, it, the, the argument is correct. And, and all the critics of Congress in the 60s said the answer is a more partisan Congress. So they argued the main problem is that Democrats were divided, so they didn't have a central voice, similarly with the Republicans. And so you can argue what's happened since. You lost the liberal Republicans, and you lost the conservative Democrats, and you have pure parties. Uh, and in some ways, that's a fulfillment of what reformers in the 1960s were arguing. That's what they were saying needed to be done. Uh, and, and partisanship back then was seen as a solution, and you can argue now we see some of the consequences of that kind of congressional politics. Do we have another question? Yes. Uh, yes. You mentioned Robert Caro's Master of the Senate. He mentions, when discussing Johnson during the Senate, he says, not only did he use every legislative maneuver together with Russell to block civil rights, but he also ostracized Herbert Lehman and Paul Douglas. Anyone who spoke to them didn't get the right appointment, and he, no one even spoke to them. So my question to you is, how many Midwestern Republican conservatives were there, and how many Southern Democrats? Because as a child, I remember the names Bilbo, Rankin, Eastland, uh, Russell, Stennis. I don't remember any Republican names. And all, Southern, all Southern Democrats. All Southern Democrats. The, the conservative Midwestern Republicans, I can't remember a name. I do remember uh, Hubert Humphrey's speech as a kid. Uh, every, they walked out, and Strom Thurmond became a states' rights party, not a Republican at that time. Yep. Well, there were many Republicans on civil rights who did no, play a role. What was so, the, can so you Everett, the breakdown? Uh, I, I think there were very, the yeah. number was much greater in Southern Democrats than Midwestern conservatives. Uh, the the key theory. was, no, the key was that the Southern Democrats controlled about 60% of the major committees. Right. And that was the heart of power. So it wasn't simply the floor power. I'm trying to think of the exact size of the coalition. You know, by 1966, it's up to like, in the House, 240 or 260 Southern Democrats and conservative uh, Republicans. But there were Republicans like Everett Dirksen, like William McCullough, um, who uh, come from these Midwestern states, Ohio and Illinois, and will be quite important, certainly on civil rights in 64 and 65. The Eisenhower administration also, you know, partisan competition works in favor of civil rights because Eisenhower in 57 is pushing for this. And so Republicans understand this is an issue they could uh, steal away uh, votes from. The liberal Democrats from the North in the period you're saying still don't have the numbers. You know, the Democratic study group in the House is about 80 members in 1958 and 1959. They don't have the numbers yet that they're going to get by 64 and 65 to pass legislation. Johnson, just to, on that point though, you know, part of what Johnson didn't like, to be fair to Johnson, when he's in the Senate about Lehman and about um, Hubert Humphrey, the people he called the crazies, the bomb throwers, um, part of it wasn't simply dismissing their ideas. He 
as we are talking about, understood where power rested in Congress. And he always sent a message to the liberals that at this moment, if you push for all these ideas, you will get nothing. That we don't have the coalition necessary in either chamber to push these bills through. That was at least his argument. Um, so he was always trying to contain them, not simply for his own power, because he didn't feel, and he was probably correct, that their ideas were going to get anywhere at that time. So, Jill, can we do one more? Oh, we can do both questions, okay. Two more questions. Yep. I thought one of the dramatic highlights of, of the book was when uh, Johnson, as he got going with his legislation, was to strike that deal with uh, Richard Byrd to keep the budget yes. under the $100 billion. Yeah. But then I noticed you came back to that uh, at the end in, um, as part of Johnson's downfall. Could you elaborate on all that? Yeah, so there's a great story. I mean, the, the, the first thing Johnson does isn't civil rights. It's not the war on poverty. He wants to get a tax cut through Congress that Kennedy had proposed that never got through. The idea was to stimulate the economy. Conservatives like Harry Byrd, uh, who was the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, were very nervous about this tax cut. They said it would increase the deficit too much. Uh, so they wanted spending cuts coupled with the tax cut. Johnson, reading uh, where power was, agrees to a budget under $100 billion, which is much lower than most liberals in his administration were saying was advisable. Uh, they're saying, how are you going to build a great society? They didn't use that term. How are you going to do all this domestically if you, don't have a, if you have a budget that was smaller than what we had the year before? Uh, but Johnson uh, agrees to a very limited budget at the start. And that has an impact. The war on poverty we think of as this huge program, costly, giant. It was a very small part uh, of the budget. It didn't have a big appropriation at the time because Johnson reaches this deal. Um, and initially, he can live with this. Uh, part of it is he hides spending on Vietnam. Part of it is the 64 election creates momentum for more legislation. But by 1967 and 68, he's back to where he started. And the final chapters of the book are about the budget wars. It, it, it sounds familiar to today, but where the conservative coalition reinvigorated after that 66 midterm goes after the president. Johnson asks for a tax hike, a surcharge, a tax surcharge of 10% to pay for the war in Vietnam and to finance the Great Society, to pay for guns and butter. He says we can afford it. And people like Wilbur Mills, uh, the Harry Birds, the Dirksons say, well, we can have guns, but you're not going to have butter. It's one or the other. And it all culminates in 1968 with this tax surcharge coupled with spending cuts that most liberals see as the end of the great society. So um, he always had these fiscal restraints on him. He starts his presidency that way, and that gets right to the point of how Congress worked. He understood he couldn't just circumvent Harry Byrd or he was going to lose right away. And by the end of this presidency, he's dealing with the budget guardians of Congress once again. And one more question. Yes, if you could touch a bit on um Johnson's relationship with Congress during you know, the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, yeah. Just to share maybe another paragraph on that. Yeah, I mean, the height of the Vietnam War is, is really 67 and 68 for Johnson's presidency. I mean, 66, he's starting to deal with some of the fallout. Uh, Bill Fulbright conducts his hearing, Senator Fulbright, that exposes some of the problems with the war. But in 66, Johnson, his main concern is still the right, not the left. This is something that's very clear when you study Lyndon Johnson. He 
uh, wasn't really scared of the college protest as they start. Uh, what he's scared about is the right, this conservative coalition uh, and the right wing in general. He calls them the great beast of America. Uh, and when it come to, came to Vietnam, yep. then it gets involved with questions about communism and anti-communism. Lyndon Johnson had been minority leader, and yep. for a while, majority, when, when Joseph McCarthy was uh, disrupting government, so the real anxiety on his part there. Yeah, I mean, you can't understand Johnson if you don't understand the 1952 election. When Republicans take the White House, they take Congress for two years, and the issues are Korea, anti-communism, who lost China, and Johnson always believed that the right, and uh, by this he means the right broadly, used these issues of anti-communism effectively. And he believed that to be a liberal in the United States and to be effective, you had to be tough on communism. And the book covers how this political instinct led him deeper and deeper into the war. And his fears of what Congress would do if he wasn't hawkish enough uh, were paramount uh, as, as at every stage of the war. By 67 and 68, though, uh, he's, he's dealing with fallout on both sides. He's certainly feel, uh, dealing with liberals in the Democratic Party who are more vocal, calling for an end to the war. But he's also dealing with conservatives who are arguing, A, you're not tough enough, uh, and you're not using all the air power you have at your disposal, and B, you have to deal with the budgetary consequences of the war. And by that, they meant cutting domestic spending. Uh, and so Vietnam connects to the budget debate, and in 1967 and 68, uh, consumes much of his presidency. Well, thank you so much, Julian Zeller. Thank you. <laughs>